welcome back to the time change. It's dark at 5.30 now. The dogs are having trouble adjusting to dinner time. Ooh, yes. If you have small people who don't understand time or pets, my sympathies and condolences go out to you. Jack and Rupert like to eat at 5 o'clock. <laughs> they don't understand. It's like, hey, it's 6 o'clock. I don't know what y'all are thinking, but it's 6 o'clock. We have to explain. No, it's really 5 o'clock. Yeah, they don't like it. Anyway, welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. And we decided to change our topic this week at the very last minute. We'll come back to that story hopefully next week because we think it's a really interesting story. Um, more sort of under undercovered American Appalachian history. Is that fair to say? That's fair. All right. We obviously love our history, and we try to find off-the-wall stories that we think that you'll find interesting, too. And next week is definitely an example of that. Well, this week, we're going to be talking about Arlington National Cemetery and uh, the Tomb of the Unknowns. Not that Arlington National Cemetery or the Tomb of the Unknowns is off-the-wall. We think it's a very interesting and important story that many people may not be familiar with. I and, learned a lot. You yeah. you learned some things, and you know a lot about Arlington. Yeah. So I would venture to say that most Americans have heard of Arlington National Cemetery, located in Arlington, Virginia, which is just west of Washington D.C. It's real. If you've been there and you don't know, it's just behind, across the river, across the bridge from the uh, Lincoln Memorial. And with that, most people know that the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is located in Arlington National Cemetery. Now, as a side note for our listeners outside of the United States, this still happens right now. Many of our U.S. high schools still take their senior trips to Washington, D.C. every year in the springtime. Yeah, I mean, it's our nation's capital, so it's something that everybody, I think, should should go see at some point if you are an American citizen. Now, we decided to go a little more in-depth about the history of the cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknowns than you might learn if you were to, say, take a tour of Arlington, because it's a really interesting and important piece of our nation. Um, and generally speaking, if you take one of the tours, they tend to focus more on the people who are buried in the cemetery. Um, and we'll touch on that a little bit, but we wanted to cover a little bit more about the history. Yeah. Now, to me, Arlington is a, it's a place of honor. Washington, D.C. is my favorite big city to visit, even though I was stationed there three times. I just I love the history, the monuments, the importance of Washington, D.C. to our country. When I visit, I, I just go, I love to stand and look in awe at the Capitol building and the White House and just reflect on all the important things that have transpired in those buildings. I mean, Abraham Lincoln and these people, George Washington walked these streets. Yeah. So it's, I mean, to me, it means a lot. So just... Think about Washington, D.C. in this and lay your politics aside if you possibly can. Yeah. And I think, too, when you're actually in D.C., if you can try to go to visit Washington, D.C. from a historical perspective and not from a current events perspective, I mean, that's nice, too. But there's so much interesting stuff. You you know, you stand in front of the White House and you think about how Dolly Madison rescued portraits as it was burning and you go to the Lincoln Memorial and you imagine, you know, some of the great orators that have spoken on those steps. And so it's kind of in that spirit that we wanted to cover the Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah. Like I said, if you can lay your politics aside and go visit the city, not the politics Mm -hmm. of the city, but go visit the city if you can possibly separate now. Now, when Kim and I go to Washington and we try to make at least once a year to Washington, we have found that we like to go and we, we go visit the monuments in the evening after dark when they're illuminated. It's beautiful. All the, all the tourists aren't there and you it just takes on a whole different meaning when you can stand in the Lincoln Memorial and you're the only people in there. It just... And you're not fighting the crowds and the hordes of people. It takes on a whole different meeting. It's beautiful. And just a side note, uh, we went at Christmas time a couple years ago, and I, <laughs> I was really excited to see the National Christmas Tree on the Mall. 
Steve will attest that I was very disappointed with the actual national Christmas tree. It wasn't as big as you thought it was. It was not what I thought it would be. But I will say, if you happen to go to D.C. during the holiday season, I really do recommend going to see the national Christmas tree because each state also has a Christmas tree. And typically they are decorated by children from that state. Um, they'll pick a school or whatever from the state and they'll ask kids to make ornaments. And those are very cool. So just a little bit, we're coming into the holiday season. Um, if you are in the Washington DC area during this time of year, definitely something to put on your list. Yeah. But back to Arlington. Yeah. But I never visit Washington without a visit to Arlington and the Tomb of the Unknowns, just remember and honor those that have given so much. I mean, to me, it's sacred ground. Mm, Absolutely. And this year, the tomb celebrates its 100th anniversary. Um, On Veterans Day, actually. Uh, So Veterans Day is this Thursday, a couple days from now, which is why we decided to scrap our original plan and go with Arlington National Cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. But in order to talk about the tomb... We need to first talk about the place it calls home, Arlington National Cemetery. And before there was Arlington National Cemetery, there was Arlington House, also known as the Custis Lee House. So let's step back not 100 years, but rather 262 years to January of 1759. That was the year that widow Martha Dandridge Custis married a tall, handsome man by the name of George Washington. This is pre-revolutionary, pre-revolutionary war, pre-General Washington. At this point, he was just a, um, what do you call those guys that go around and like. Statesman? No, I don't. He like he measured land. What are they called? Surveyor. Surveyors. Yeah. He, at this point, I'm pretty sure he was still just a surveyor. Now, the Custis family was wealthy with nearly 300 slaves and thousands of acres of land. Martha's only living son. Now, she did have some uh, children from her prior marriage who had died young. Um, But her only living son, John, was created a trust of almost 18,000 acres that would become his when he was of age. And like his parents before him, John only had one son named for his stepfather. At age 21, George Washington Custis inherited not only a large sum of money, but also a large plantation in Virginia. It was on that land overlooking the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. that he built the Greek revival mansion known as Arlington House as a shrine to George Washington. Okay, wait a minute. Yeah. So George Washington's son? Stepson. Stepson. Yes. So this is his step stepson's son. So George Washington's grandson. Step-grandson. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I mean, go ahead. It's the same kind of relationship that we have with Okay. that I have with my grandkids now. So, yeah. Um, so uh, the Custis's only child, so George Washington Custis, had one child. Her name was Mary Anna Rudolph Custis. And she married her childhood friend and distant cousin, a guy by the name of Robert E. Lee. Okay, this is where I was trying to make the connection. Yeah. So Robert E. Lee is not a descendant of... I, I knew that. Maybe distant because they were cousins. They were distant cousins. Okay. So it may be like seven, seventh cousin by marriage or something. Okay. So the Lees inherited the Custis estate in 1857, including 196 enslaved persons who lived and worked on the plantation. So on May 24th, 1861, Virginia seceded from the United States Robert E. Lee had resigned his commission in April of that year and joined the Confederacy. Mary had not wanted to leave her family home, but she knew that would only be a matter of time before the war was literally at her front door. I mean, she could see Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States. Mm -hmm. So on May 14th, she left to go stay with relatives in the South. The United States Army then occupied the estate located on the strategic high ground across from the nation's capital, as a camp and headquarters for United States troops, and there they constructed forts on the property because Mrs. Lee failed to pay taxes in person, as was then required by law, the federal government confiscated the estate, um, purchasing it on January 11, 1864, for government use 
for war, military, charitable, and educational purposes. As the Civil War continued, the need for military cemeteries grew. Brigadier General Montgomery C. Meigs, who was the Quartermaster General of the United States Army, authorized military burials on the Arlington property, believing that the presence of graves would deter the Lees from ever returning back to Arlington. Secretary of War Edward Stanton approved the establishment of a 200-acre military cemetery on June 15, 1864. Meigs gave specific instructions that the dead be buried as close to the house as possible in order to render it unlivable. Nearly 16,000 soldiers were laid to rest at Arlington by the end of the war, and throughout the Civil War, the Arlington estate also supported thousands of African Americans fleeing enslavement in the South. On December 4, 1863, the federal government dedicated Freedman's Village, a planned community for freed slaves, on the southern portion of the property. And Freedman's Village grew to a community of 1,500 with a hospital, two churches, schools, and a home for the elderly. Freed African Americans lived and farmed there until 1900 when the government closed Freedman's Village and incorporated the land into Arlington National Cemetery. Neither Robert E. Lee nor his wife, as the title holder of the land, ever attempted to recover control of the Arlington House. I guess they figured it was probably pretty useless, and they probably didn't want to move there anyway. So in 1874, Lee's eldest son, George Washington Custis Lee, sued the United States government for the return of the Arlington property. He claimed that it had been illegally confiscated. In December 1882, the Supreme Court ruled in Lee's favor. A few months later, in March 1883, the federal government purchased the property from Lee for $150,000, which is the equivalent to about $4 million today, and Arlington National Cemetery continued its mission as a burial ground for U.S. service members and their families. That's a really good deal. Um, $4 million? That's but, really not that much money for what they were getting. Yeah, but at that time, it wasn't, you know, the big city. What That was probably, yeah, I mean, it was probably a good deal, but yeah, I mean, you I can't know it compare wasn't, to what Arlington is today. No, 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 but I know, but that's still for, I mean, for a national cemetery and the grounds and the house, that $4 million seems like a good, a good deal. Like, in some parts of the country, that house alone would be worth $4 million now. Not at that time. No, I mean the equivalent now. Like if well, yeah. In the, in the mar- I don't know. I just think it seems like a good well, deal. Well, I mean, look at the Louisiana Purchase. That was a good deal. When they purchased, purchased Alaska, Alaska, that was, was a good a deal. Alaska was a really okay. good deal, yeah. But anyway. Okay. Initially, being buried at a national cemetery was not considered an honor but it ensured that service members of whose families could not afford to bring them home for a funeral were given a, uh, a proper burial. Now, in 1868, the first Decoration Day took place at Arlington, and eventually the event became so popular that an amphitheater was built in 1873 to hold the official ceremonies. Decoration Day, of course, eventually became Memorial Day. Um, and some people, I think, still call it Decoration Day. In 1899, the U.S. government began repatriating, at its own expense, service members who died overseas in the Spanish-American War. And then in 1900, Congress authorized a designated section for Confederate soldiers at a time when the nation was trying to reconcile after the Civil War. The Confederate section contains the graves of 482 veterans and spouses. After World War I, more than 2,000 U.S. service members were repatriated to the grounds. And our story of the unknowns really, though, starts at the end of the Civil War. In 1866, a granite sarcophagus was dedicated at Arlington to honor the bodies of about 2,011 unidentified Civil War casualties. These soldiers were originally buried in a simple pit 20 feet deep in 1865 that was dug inside what had been the flower garden of Mrs. Lee's Right outside her house, just mm-hmm. like Kim had mentioned earlier. They wanted the, the bodies buried there so it, it wouldn't be appealing for them to move back. As historian George W. Dodge notes, Mrs. Lee was not too happy about that and complained after an 1866 visit that they have done everything to debase and desecrate the Lee's former property. In 1873, Associated Press Dispatch describes a particularly moving service 
on Decoration Day, which, as Kim said, is now Memorial Day, led by President Ulysses S. Grant, in which mourners gathered around the sarcophagus as orphans from the National Soldiers and Sailors' Home sang a hymn, and a war veteran named J.P. Irvine recited a poem called Unknown. But unfortunately, over time, the words of that poem, no one knows what they were. It, it's been lost. Oh, so, that's unfortunate. Yeah, so no one knows what it was. After World War I, the idea of selecting a single unknown soldier for honors gained currency, in part because the British and French had decided to do it. United States Representative Hamilton Fish Jr. of New York convinced Congress to pass a resolution calling for the U.S. military to retrieve the remains of an unidentified U.S. soldier from Europe and bury him in a new tomb in Arlington near the cemetery's amphitheater, where a new, more elaborate monument would also be built. Fish wanted an unknown in time to hold an elaborate memorial service on the traditional May 30th Decoration Day. But according to a, to a United States Army historical account, officials at the War Department, the forerunner of today's Department of Defense, they weren't really too big on this idea. The then Secretary of War, Newton D. Baker, told a Senate committee considering the legislation, while 1,237 American dead were still un- unidentified, the military was hopeful that it would eventually be able to put a name on all of them and was reluctant to hastily select and bury an unknown soldier who later might be identified. Now, this actually ended up being really prophetic thinking, and we'll find out more about that later, but he, Newton D. Baker was actually onto something here. Yep. After Baker was replaced by a new war secretary, John W. Weeks, he voiced similar objections, but instead suggested that one might be found by November 11th, the date of the armistice that ended the war. In response, Congress agreed to make November 11th a national holiday for honoring the war, the World War I dead. Military officials still had the problem of finding soldiers whose remains were unlikely to ever be identified. In September 1921, the War Department ordered a Quartermaster Corps team to select a body from those buried in French graveyards. According to the official records of the Army Graves Registration Service deposited in the United States National Archives in Washington, four bodies were transported to Chalon from the cemeteries of Aine-Marne, Somme, Musargon, and Saint-Miel. All were sites of large battles, and l- the latter two regions were on the sites of two offensive operations in which American troops struck a leading role in the decisive summer and fall of 1918. As the service records stated, the identity of the bodies was completely unknown, and this is a quote. The original records showing the internment of these bodies were searched, and the four bodies selected represented the remains of soldiers of which there was absolutely no indication as to name, rank, organization, or date of death. They were also prepared to present an additional four alternates if none of those worked out. It's really amazing how detailed, though, the records they, they could go to the cemetery and they knew exactly where these people were buried. And mm-hmm. just the, the military records were caught. I, they obviously couldn't identify them, but they did as much as they could to where they were at that time, thought their final resting place would be. Yeah. Yeah. I That is one thing um, in World War II, uh, well, World War One also, but uh, it, it just, the the bloody and muddy mess that was the European campaigns. It, it was. It's amazing to me that there are such good no. records. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand without getting too gory about this. Yeah, with the artillery, there, it, there, there may have been a just a pieces. body, the, a pieces yes. of a body that yeah. they couldn't identify. Yeah. In October, all four were transported by truck to the city hall of Chalon-sur-Marne for an induction ceremony in which one of the bodies would be chosen for burial in the Arlington tomb. To preserve the status of being unknown, it was crucial that at that point that United States and French soldiers even rearrange the caskets as they were laid out so it would be even difficult to tell which cemetery the bodies had come from. Originally, an officer was to pick the honoree, but um, after American officials found out that the French had designated an enlisted man to pick their own unknown soldier, they, the Army did, the United States Army did the same thing, and they left the selection to Sergeant 
Edward F. Younger. As the band played a hymn, Younger walked around the casket several times and then randomly placed roses on one of the lids. You know, that had to be, he had I to feel. I can't res- imagine. I cannot imagine what that must have felt like. Yeah, the responsibility that that's probably in, had to be on intense. his shoulders. That is intense. Yeah. The body inside the casket was then transferred into a special, more elaborate casket, which was sealed for shipment to the United States. The three other unknown soldiers were then taken by a truck to cemetery outside Paris, where they were reburied. On November 9, 1921, the USS Olympia sailed up the Potomac River, receiving and returning salutes from military posts all along the route. And you know, it starts at Norfolk, and there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of military posts. Oh, sure. As they travel to Washington D.C., they docked at the Washington Navy Yard. There, they were met by a contingent of dignitaries, including General of the Armies John J. Pershing and the War Secretary Weeks. Both were on hand to meet the casket and watched it placed onto a caisson. The procession was escorted by two squadrons of horse cavalry, and then it proceeded via M Street and New Jersey Avenue to the Capitol building, where the casket was taken into the rotunda and it lay in state. President Harding and his wife then paid their respects with Mrs. Harding placing a wide white band of ribbon, which she had made herself, on the casket. Two days later, an even more elaborate funeral procession that included a regiment of marching infantry, a band, a drum corps, and cavalry and artillery squadrons. The casket was transported down along Pennsylvania Avenue to 15th Street. On 15th Street to Pennsylvania Avenue again past the White House to M Street, and then on M Street to the Aqueduct Bridge, which was slightly upstream from the present-day Francis Scott Key Bridge. The parade took three hours to reach Arlington Cemetery, where the casket was carried inside the amphitheater. President Harding addressed a crowd of more than 5,000 people, giving a speech in which he pleaded for an end to war. Then various dignitaries, including Congressman Fish, whose idea it was to even do this in the first place, paid their respects, and laid wreaths. Perhaps the most unusual tribute, though, came from Chief Plenty Coup of the Crow Nation, who laid his war bonnet and coup stick at the tomb. During the ceremony, the World War I unknown was awarded the Victoria Cross by Admiral of the Fleet Lord Beatty on behalf of King George V of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom Victoria Cross was placed with the soldier. Other allied nations also awarded the American unknown soldier with decorations including the Legion of Honor, the Medaille Militaire, and Croix de Gare from France, the War Cross from Czechoslovakia, the Gold Medal for Bravery from Italy, and awards from Poland and from Romania. Early on October 17, 1921, the British unknown warrior had been conferred the United States Medal of Honor by General of the Army's John Pershing. In 1828, the unknown soldier was presented the Silver Buffalo Award for Distinguished Service to America's Youth by the Boy Scouts of America. Now, all the unknowns have been awarded the Medal of Honor, and they're all displayed at Arlington at the museum located just behind the tomb. We'll discuss later, but the Vietnam veteran was identified and he, he was reinterred at a different cemetery, but his medal remained at Arlington because the medal was awarded to the unknown Vietnam soldier. Which, I this is so fascinating to me um, that A, all of the nations of the world have such respect for each other's servicemen mm-hmm. and that they would all give their respective awards to a a foreign national, basically, like a an opposing force sometimes. But they just had such respect for the, the way that they conducted themselves on the battlefield. And I think it's really fascinating, too, that all of the unknowns have been given the Medal of Honor because that, to me, says that our government automatically assumes that each of its soldiers is going to conduct him or herself in a manner that is befitting of the Medal of Honor. Yeah, I think I think it was... That's rep- like the default, you know what I to, mean? To represent all and the, the honor and the courage and bravery that all sacrificed. I think that's what it was. Yeah, but that's for. what I'm saying is like yeah. the, the fact that they even gave it, yeah. they didn't have to give the Medal of Honor, but the fact that they did 
they don't know who this person is, but yeah. they that's the default is that yeah. of course our service members are going yeah. to serve honorably. Well, just technically, because people will be listening, you don't they don't they're not given the Medal of Honor. They've earned it, they're awarded it. Right. Okay. okay. That's yes, thank okay. you. Now then the casket was finally lowered into the crypt, the bottom of which had been covered with a layer of soil from France. A battery fired twenty one guns in salute and a bugler played taps. I think that is so appropriate. That the French the soil. French soil. Mm-hmm. He was interred below a three-level marble tomb. The bottom two levels are six granite sections each, and the top is of at least nine blocks with a rectangular opening in the center of each level through which the unknown remains were placed through the tomb and into the ground below. A stone slab, rather than marble, covers the rectangular opening. Since 1921, the intent was to place a superstructure on top of the tomb but it was not until July 3rd, 1926, that Congress authorized the completion of the tomb and the expenditure of $50,000 with a completed cost of $48,000. A design competition was held and won by architect Lorimer Rich and sculptor Thomas Hudson Jones. An appropriation from Congress for the work was secured, and on December 21st, 1929, a contract for completion of the tomb itself was entered into. The tomb would consist of seven pieces of marble in four levels, the cap, the die, the base, and the sub-base, of which the die is the largest block with the sculpting on all four sides. Querying the Yule Marble, uh, which comes from 3.9 miles south of Marble, Colorado by the Vermont Marble Company, was a one-year process beginning in 1930. The cap was quarried on the first attempt, but the base required three tries. The large middle block also required three tries, In late January 1931, the 56-ton middle block was lifted out of the quarry. The quarrying involved 75 men. When the block was separated from the mountain inside the quarry, it weighed 124 tons. A wire saw was then brought into the quarry to cut the block down to 56 tons. On February 3rd, the block reached the Marble Mill site, which was in the town of Marble, after a four-day trip from the quarry. From there, it was created, and then it was shipped to Vermont on February 8th. The block was sawn into its final size at uh, West Rutland, Vermont, and was fabricated by craftsmen in Proctor, Vermont, before it was shipped by train to Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. By September, all seven blocks were on the grounds at the side of the tomb at uh, Arlington Cemetery. Assembly began in September 1931, However, an imperfection was found in the base, and that required three more quarries. By the end, a lot of work. It's a lot of work. By the end of December 1931, the assembly was completed. Finishing work followed with the carvings on the die block by the Piccarelli brothers under the direction of sculpture sculptor Thomas Jones. The brothers also carved the Lincoln statue at the Lincoln Memorial, among other. Monuments. They're really good. That's probably yeah. my favorite monument because of the detail on yeah. Lincoln's face. Yeah. I love it. The tomb was completed without formal ceremony on April 9, 1932. The tomb was placed at the head of the grave of the World War I unknown. Now, if you visit today, on either side of this grave are the crypts of the unknowns from World War II and the Korean unknowns. Between the two lies a crypt that once contained an unknown from Vietnam. The tomb has a flat-faced form and is relieved at the corners and along the sides by neoclassical, neoclassical pilasters set into the surface with objects and inscriptions carved into the side. The 1931 symbolism of the objects on the north, south, and east sides have changed over time. The north and south panel with three wreaths on each side represented in 1931 a world of memories but later changed to reflect the six major battles engaged in by American forces in France, Ardennes, Belleau Wood, Chateau-Thierry, Meuse-Argonne, Oiseau-Oiseau, and some. Each wreath has 38 leaves and 12 berries. The east panel that faces Washington, D.C. are three Greek figures originally that represented peace, victory, and American manhood, but later changed to valor instead of American manhood. The west panel, which is visible if you watch the changing of the guard, is inscribed with, Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. 
So let's backtrack just a little, and let's talk about the other known other unknowns buried at the Tomb of the Unknowns. On August 3, 1956, President Dwight David Eisenhower signed a bill to select and pay tribute to the unknowns of World War II and the Korean War. The selection ceremonies and the interment of these unknowns took place in 1958. The World War II unknown was selected from the remains exhumed from cemeteries in Europe, Africa, Hawaii, and the Philippines. From the original four, the two unknowns from the European theater and one from the Pacific theater were placed in identical caskets and taken aboard the USS Canberra, which was a guided missile cruiser resting off the Virginia Capes and placed on either side of the Korean unknown. Navy Hospital Corpsman First Class William R. Sharrett, then the U.S. Navy's only active-duty Medal of Honor recipient who was an enlisted man, selected the right-hand casket as the World War II unknown. The casket of the remaining World War II unknown received a solemn burial at sea. The Korean unknown have been selected from four unknown Americans who died in the Korean War that were disinterred from the National Cemetery of the Pacific, which is located in Hawaii. Army Master Sergeant Ned Lyle made the final selection. The unselected unknowns were then reinterred there at the cemetery in Hawaii. The caskets of the World War II and Korean unknowns arrived in Washington on May 28, 1958, where they lay in the Capitol Rotunda until the morning of May 30th, when they were carried on caissons to Arlington National Cemetery. President Eisenhower awarded each of the two unknowns the Medal of Honor, and the unknowns of World War II and the Korean War were then interred in the plaza beside the World War I comrade. Now, the Vietnam Unknown Service member is a little bit, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it was very controversial at the time for the Vietnam veterans. Yeah, what else is, I mean, there's nothing about Vietnam that's not controversial, I feel like. This service member was originally designated by Medal of Honor recipient U.S. Marine Corps Sergeant Major Alan J. Kellogg Jr. during a ceremony at Pearl Harbor. Each branch of the armed services took part in the transportation to honor the unknown, the Marines from the Marine Barracks, Hawaii, consisted of an honor guard of nine enlisted men and Lieutenant Dennis Muller. The designated Vietnam unknown was transported aboard USS Bruton, where the Marines stood guard over the casket during the voyage to Naval Air Station Alameda, California. At Travis, the debarkation ceremony turned the remains over to the United States Air Force on May 24th. The next day, the remains of the unknown were flown from Travis Air Force Base, California, arriving at Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland. Once there, the remains were turned over to the U.S. Army, where the remains were taken to Fort McNair for a placement upon the horse-drawn wagon, which later carried the unknown to the Capitol Rotunda for display before interment. While on display for public viewing, all branches of the U.S. Armed Forces stood in honor, guarding the casket of the unknown for two weeks. Many Vietnam veterans and President Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan visited the Vietnam unknown in the U.S. Capitol. An Army caisson carried the Vietnam Unknown from the Capitol to the Memorial Amphitheater at Arlington National Cemetery on Memorial Day, May 28, 1984. President Reagan presided over the funeral and presented the Medal of Honor to the Vietnam Unknown and also acted as next of kin by accepting the interment flag at the end of the ceremony. The interment flags of all unknowns at the Tomb of the Unknowns are on view in the Memorial Display Room. And that's where the Medals of Honor are. In 1994, Ted Sampley, who was a POW MIA activist, determined that the remains of the Vietnam Unknown were likely those of Air Force First Lieutenant Michael Joseph Blassie, who was shot down near An Loc, Vietnam in 1972. Sampley published an article in his newsletter and contacted the Blassie family, family, who attempted to pursue the case with the Air Force Casualty Office, but without result. In January 1998, CBS News broadcast report based on Sampley's investigation, which brought political pressure to support the identification of the remains. The body was exhumed on May 14, 1998. Based on mitochondrial DNA testing, Department of Defense scientists confirmed the remains were those of First Lieutenant Blassie. The identification was announced on June 30, 1998, And on July 10th, Lieutenant Blassie's remains arrived home to his family in St. Louis, Missouri. 
His family, he was reinterred at Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery on July 11th. His Medal of Honor remained at Arlington in the museum, because, as we said, because the medal was presented to the unknown Vietnam. Right. The unknown Vietnam veteran soldier. Now, the crypt where he had lain was rededicated on September 17, 1999, which is National POW MIA Recognition Day to honor all the missing service members from the Vietnam War, and it was decided that the crypt would remain vacant. Now, I do want to mention, I thought it was a little interesting that um, Lieutenant Blassie was not buried at Arlington um, because he had every right to be, Mm -hmm. but was reinterred instead at Jefferson Barracks, but that was at his family's request, and I'm assuming that it is closer to where it's, it's where they, they he live. Was from. Yeah. And, yeah, and so that they could there pay their respects on the regular instead of going all the way out to DC. Now, a civilian guard was first posted at the tomb on November 17, 1925, to prevent, among other things, families from picnicking on the flat marble slab with views of the city. It's it's a beautiful view right there. It is a beautiful view, but uh, that seems like a strange place to have a picnic. Yeah, but that's that's what they did back in the day. That what that wasn't that unusual back in the day. They used to do that up here at the the Dayton VA. It's one thing to have. I mean, we have a beautiful cemetery here, Woodlawn Cemetery, and mm-hmm. it's one thing to have a picnic in the cemetery. I don't think that's necessarily weird. I think it's kind of weird to have a picnic on the marble slab. Yeah, that seems very disrespectful okay. to me. So, a military guard was first posted on March twenty fifth, nineteen twenty six. The first 24-hour guard was posted on midnight, July 2nd, 1937. The Tomb of the Unknowns has been guarded continuously 24 hours a day, seven days a week since that time. It doesn't matter inclement weather, terrorist attacks, and we talk about terrorist attacks, the Pentagon, which is right there, um, all that stuff. They have never caused to, they've, they've always guarded snowstorms, rain, Everything they it's never they've never ceased guarding it. Um, And that's really something when you think back to the events of 9-11, you know, it's such an honor. And I wonder, too, the the soldiers who were standing post that day, what they thought, you know, knowing what was going on in the in the area. Yeah, I I'm I would love to know what their thoughts were. Yeah. Since 1948, the tomb guards have been a special platoon within the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment called the Old Guard, and they work on a team rotation of 24 hours on, 24 hours off for five days, um, taking the following four days off. A guard averages six hours to prepare his uniform, which are made out of heavy wool regardless of the time of the year for the next day's work. In addition to preparing the uniform, guards also conduct physical training and other duties because they are active, active duty, duty soldiers, infantry, yeah. infantry soldiers in the United States Army. They will cut their hair before their next work day and at times are involved in regimental functions as well. Tomb guards are required to memorize 35 pages of information about Arlington National Cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, including the location of nearly 300 graves and who is buried in each one. Now, it's interesting. Um, they, they cut their hair daily. And or at least before their next work day. Yeah. The the stats and I don't know off the top of my head what they are, but the the soldiers have to have a very specific height weight requirements. Like you can't be over this height or under this height. You have to have it's very, very specific. They want as much uniformity as possible as far as build. They're tall and thin. Yeah. And and the, the uniforms come in like one size. So there it's it's very and it's very much in keeping with the idea of a United States service officer or not officer but a United States serviceman or service woman because now there are females that do guard the tombs mm-hmm. of the unknown now. Um now the old guard is posted to Fort Myer, Virginia, adjacent to Arlington National Cemetery and it's considered one of the highest honors to serve as a sentinel at the tomb of the unknowns. Fewer than 20% of all volunteers are accepted for training, and of those, only a fraction pass training to become full-fledged tomb guards. The soldier walking the mat does not wear rank insignia so as not to outrank the unknowns, whatever their ranks may have been. 
Non-commissioned officers do wear rank insignia when changing the guard only. They have a separate uniform without rank that is worn when they actually guard the unknowns or are posted. The Sentinels will confront people who cross the barriers at the tomb or whom they perceive to be disrespectful or excessively loud, and I, they, I've seen them do it. They're very professional about it. They're very polite about it, but if you're being loud, they, they'll say something to you. Yeah. There is a meticulous routine that the guard follows when watching over the graves. So... Let me, before we even go into that, I've known a couple of tomb guards. And oh, they, really? Yeah, and they, not personally known, but I've talked to them like sure. at, at different places. They take this as a very serious honor. I would imagine that for a lot of them, it's probably the highlight of their career. It, 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 it's, it's like the greatest honor that could be bestowed on them sure. that I got to guard the tomb of the unknowns. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's very ritualistic and a lot of symbolism in what they do. They march 21 steps south down the 63-foot-long black mate, black mat that is laid across the tomb. They turn, they face east towards the tomb for 21 seconds. Then they turn and they face north. They change their weapon to their outside shoulder. They wait 21 seconds. Then they march 21 steps back down the mat then they turn and face face east for 21 seconds. Then they turn and they face south. They change weapon their weapon again to the other shoulder. Wait 21 seconds. They repeat this routine until the soldier is relieved by of their duty at the changing of the guard ceremony. And that's what everyone goes to see mm-hmm. is the change in the guard ceremony. After each turn, the guard executes a sharp shoulder arms movement to place the weapon on the shoulder closest to the visitors to signify that the guard stands between the tomb and any possible threat. Out of respect for the interred, the sentinels command silence at the tombs. If the guard walking the mat must vocally confront a disturbance from the spectators or a threat, the routine is interrupted and remains so until the disturbance is under control. The sentinel will exit the mat, place the weapon in port arms position and confront the disturbance. Once under control, the sentinel then walks on the pavement to the other side of the mat, turns to shoulder arms, and resumes the routine from the point of interruption. 21 was chosen because it symbolizes the highest military honor that can be bestowed, the 21-gun salute. Yeah. Now, when we say port arms, they don't point the weapon at somebody. Port arms means the weapon is is across with the the business end of the rifle, Up over their left shoulder, and it's you know it's not aimed at somebody in a no, no, threatening no. way. Not it's, like I wish I wish you could see him miming the motion of of how the the weapon should be. Basically, picture if you're holding a gun and the bayonet is up facing your left shoulder and the buttstock is down facing your right hip. Yep. The mat usually is replaced twice a year before Memorial Day and before Veterans Day. This is required because the, the, the sentinels, the guards, have metal plates placed into the soles and their inner parts of their shoes to allow for a more oh. rugged sole because they do a lot of marching there and to give the signature click, you've heard it, you know, oh, how they yeah. of their heels when they do their their facing movements oh. on the on the mat. I didn't know they were special shoes. Yeah. And they, they also wear sunglasses because of the bright reflection of the marble that surrounds the tomb and the Memorial Amphitheater, which is right there. A special army decoration, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier Guard Identification Badge, is authorized for wear after passing a detailed test of 100 questions from a pool of more than 300, a uniform test with two gigs or errors or fewer, measured to the 164th of an inch. That's like they're measuring their their ribbons and all their stuff. yeah and a test on the guard-changing sequence. After serving honorably for a period of nine months and having passed the sequence of tests, a tomb guard is permanently awarded the badge. Since the first award on February 7, 1958, fewer than 650 soldiers have completed training and been awarded this badge, including four women. A small number of tomb guard identification badges have also been retroactively awarded to soldiers who served as guards before 1959. The Tomb Guard Identification Badge is the only badge awarded by the United States Army that can be revoked after a soldier has left the military. 
The regimental commander of the United St- of the Third U.S. Infantry Regiment has the authority to revoke a badge from any guard, past or present, for any act that would bring discredit upon the Tomb of the Unknowns. The badge was designed in 1956 and was first issued to members of the Honor Guard at the Tomb of the Unknowns on February 7, 1958. It was first issued as only a temporary wear item, meaning the soldiers could only wear the badge during their tenure as members of the Honor Guard. Upon leaving the duty, the badge was returned and reissued to incoming soldiers. But in 1963, a regulation was enacted that allowed the badge to be worn as a permanent part of the military uniform, even after the soldier's completion of duty at the Tomb of the Unknowns. And I, you would be the one that would know this. Is it like a, a on goes, your arm? It goes on right your, there on their chest, their on breast their che- pocket. On yeah. their breast pocket. Yeah. Do they have one that goes with their dress uniform as well? Yeah. So it's a, it's like it's on your duty uniform and your dress uniform. Yeah. Interesting. What does it look like? It, it, it looks like the the tomb that the parts above ground mm-hmm. surrounded by a wreath and mm-hmm. it says honor guard on it. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll, I'm going to look for it and I'll post it on our socials. So yep. if you want to see it, you can see it. Some of the nation's most legendary heroes are buried at Arlington National Cemetery. George C. Marshall was the Army Chief of Staff during World War II, and his name was given to the plan for rebuilding post-war Europe, which is known as the Marshall Plan. Marshall would also serve as Secretary of State under President Truman. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1953. Abner Doubleday, whom we always associated with the guy who invented baseball, but, but he's, he's not, not. He's not. He's not in Arlington because of that. He's in Arlington because he fired the first shot in the defense of Fort Sumter that kicked off and started the uh, the Civil War. And he actually didn't invent baseball. Yeah, he played a pivotal role in the early fighting at the Battle of Gettysburg too. Audie Murphy, who was the most decorated soldier of the Second World War, and later became a Hollywood actor, starring in The Red Badge of Courage, and the. Uh, an autobiography, a cinematic autobiography himself called To Hell and Back. Walter Reed confirmed the theory that mosquitoes transmitted yellow fever. Go back and listen to our um, our Panama Canal mm. episode. The major's uh, medical research enabled the work to continue on the Panama Canal. Walter Reed National Military Medical Center is named in his honor. Former presidents William Howard Taft and John F. Kennedy are both buried at Arlington, as well as JFK's brother, who was the former Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Anita Newcomb was the first female surgeon in the United States Army. She founded the Army Nurse Corps in 1900. She also trained nurses for the Japanese Red Cross in the early 1900s. Medgar Evers, civil rights activist who played a key role in desegregating the University of Mississippi. Evers, who served in Europe during World War II, was buried with full military honors after his assassination in 1963. And Thurgood Marshall came to national prominence, successfully arguing Brown versus the Board of Education, which 1954 court decision ended segregation of U.S. public schools, and Thurgood Marshall later became the first African-American Supreme Court justice. Today, approximately 400,000 veterans and their eligible dependents are buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Service members from every one of America's major wars, from the Revolutionary War to today's conflicts, are interred there. Although the only real requirement for burial at Arlington are at least one day of active duty service and an honorable discharge, eligibility for in-ground burial at Arlington Cemetery is the most stringent of all the U.S. national cemeteries. And they are, they're running out of room. Yeah. And so they're, they're really... Yes. They've, they've got some figuring out what they got to do. Yeah. And they got to acquire some more land. There are about 30 services a day, and the most casketed burials are conducted about three weeks from the time of request. Now, I've heard them go on a lot longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it kind of depends on the red tape, and it, there's a lot to it. Yeah. It's it's really hard to get a casketed burial, though. Most people, they request that because of the space issue, most of them, they request um, that you only submit cremated yeah. remains. So for cremated remains, when they're burying people on top of each other, too. Yeah. Like a spouse right. will be buried on top of each other. Right. For cremated remains, wait times are as long as 9 to 11 months for a service requiring full 
uh, funeral honors with the funeral escort and up to seven to eight months for a military funeral honor service without funeral escort or for dependent honors. Now, at most national cemeteries, it's easy to oh, get yeah. buried in there. But Arlington, because of the space limitations, right. there's some pretty definite guidelines without getting into it because it gets really complicated about some stuff. Right. But it's it, it's it's difficult to get buried there. In in a casket. Yeah. It's yeah. but it, it like we said, it's a long it's, it's a complicated There's a lot to it, yeah. Okay. Now, it should be noted that priority is given to current conflict active duty service members killed in action or who died of wounds. Those burials can be accommodated within two weeks of the date of death, and those, it's, I don't want to say it's easier to get an in-casket burial. That sounds really callous, but it it is a little bit, you are more likely to Different have, yeah, yeah, you are more likely to, if you are a current active duty service member killed in action. Yeah. So that's it. That is our tribute to Arlington National Cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which you told me earlier when we were researching, it's not actually called that. It doesn't have a fo- an official name. There's really no official name for it. For the tomb. For the tomb, Yeah. So we commonly, I mean, that's kind of the common vernacular, I guess, but there's no real name for it. Yeah. If you ever get the chance to get to Washington, D.C., you've got to go to Arlington Cemetery and see the changing of the guard. And if you happen to be listening to the show and you are a former guard of uh, the tomb, we would love to hear from you. Please drop us a line. Um a lost hour at gmail.com. You can also find us on all the social media platforms. We would do a special show just for you. We would. We would love to hear about your experiences and what it's like behind the scenes. All right. So that does, as you said, that wraps up. That's about uh, it. That wraps it up for Arlington National Cemetery. Next week, we will go on to another topic, but we just wanted to get this out because Veterans Day was coming up, and it is the 100th anniversary. Yeah, and I do want to say um, a very special thank you to all of the veterans who have served um, wherever, in whatever capacity you served. Thank you for your sacrifices, for your family sacrifices, um, and we really appreciate you. All right. So, Kim, if someone wanted to get hold of us, how would they do it? Again, the email address is alosthour at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Twitter, to a lesser, we're there, but we don't really check it. So, Facebook and Instagram are probably a little bit better as far as social media is concerned. Yep. And please tell a friend about this show if you're listening to it. Mm-hmm. And if your friend says, well, where can I find them? Everywhere. You can find us on all all the platforms. Like even said, the little ones. Even the little ones. You can you can ask Siri to do it. You can ask Alexa to do it. You can ask Bixby to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you have. You can just talk into your device and ask them to play an hour of your life. Mm-hmm. And we'll do that. Yep. So, anything else? I think that's it. I'm looking forward to next week. All right. So, from our studio in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include PBS NewsHour, the History Channel, Wikipedia, ArlingtonTours.com, and the Arlington National Cemetery website.